Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the show, Science, Facts, and Fallacies, episode 242. Very excited, as always, to be here. My name is Cameron English. I'm your host, joined by my faithful co-host, Dr. Liza Dunn, bringing all the facts, explaining everything so everyone understands what's going on. How are you, Liza? What's going on? I am well. I just drove 2,200 miles across the country, and we got a flat tire and had to drive. Actually, it was a cracked rim. And we had to fill up the tire in the middle of nowhere, Minnesota. And we had to fill up the tire every 50 miles as we limped <laughs> down to Chicago. So I'm still married. <laughs> <laughs> he was a real sport, though. <laughs> maybe, uh, maybe that's the sign of a great marriage to come because that will test your patience. That will test your mettle. Every 15 miles, yeah, I might... Uh, I might punch something yet. We did fine. He's a keeper. <laughs> All right. Well, that's good to hear. I'm glad you guys made it home okay because uh, moving is such a pain in the ass. So good for you guys. In any case, three stories as always. Uh, really great stuff this week. This last one's going to be tough. I'm just warning everyone. It might it might rub you the wrong way, but that's okay because uh, that's what we should do in science is, is challenge yeah. people's ideas. All right. So let's get into it. So first up, BBC corrects its misleading educational site hyping the benefits of organic farming and the alleged environmental problems of GMOs. Next up, happy 41st birthday to genetically engineered insulin. Your approval by the FDA in 1982 took five months. How many years would it take now? And finally, brace yourselves, everyone. Scientific American has become a scientific sewer, in quotes, promoting ideological rubbish on the evolution of male-female differences. Oh, boy. <laughs> All right. Let's start, with the, let's start with the good stuff first, and then we'll work our way up to this, uh, to this painful topic we're going to discuss. So this is a story published uh, at the Genetic Literacy Project by Science for Sustainable Agriculture, and they are a think tank that just throws grenades at people that say nonsense on the internet. That's the best way I can put it is they just, they respectfully, but they go after the media as they did BBC in this case, and they go after different websites and they just say, Hey, let's tell the truth. Okay. If this stuff is so bad, if farming is so bad, don't make up nonsense. <laughs> so as, as the headline gives away, BBC has this, this website, it's sort of this educational themed website and they put an article up there about organic farming and they had all kinds of typical tropes that we've talked about uh, year after year, episode after episode on the show. And the thing that's alarming about it is that the website is geared at undergrad students, undergrad college students. So you have these young people who are smart, but they don't know very much, which is why they're going to school and they're being effectively force fed things that are just false. So a couple examples, the website, and this is a direct quote, though, the website said, Intensive farming reduces biodiversity, so all the animals and plants and stuff around a farm, uh, and increases pollution. Uh, they also claim that organic milk and beef are produced without using antibiotics, and organic farmers do not apply pesticides to their crops. Okay, so outright silliness here. Um, and I'll stop, but the, the happy ending in this case, which, which almost never happens, I deal with the press a lot in the work that I do, they almost never own up to their mistakes. So this is a great example 
Science for Sustainable Agriculture reached out to BBC and they said, these are falsehoods. You need to take these off. And to their credit, they said, oh, you know what? We were wrong about that. Our bad. And then they updated the article and they issued a correction. Uh, and I'm, I'm glad to hear that. So, so that's the that's the brief summary. That's the good news. That's how it ended. And then we can talk a little bit about uh, the specifics of this, Liza. So what did you think? Well, yeah, I think it's, I, I was absolutely stunned that BBC said, oh, yeah, our bad, whoopsie. Um, I almost wanted to go see if anybody needed their temperature taken <laughs> because <laughs> that's so rare that people will own up to their mistakes. But they did. And, I, I, and so hopefully that has a knock-on impact. I, I do think people are starting to listen a little bit more about um, or, you know, the, the, the controversies and are listening to listening to maybe both sides a little bit more. And that might be because of the fallout from Sri Lanka. Um, people have started to see that there are actual very um, significant ramifications for uh, if you make poor agricultural policy. So BBC is an international news organization, and, if, and so hopefully they um, kind of looked at some of the commentary around what happened in Sri Lanka. Uh, when people did go all organic and, you know, <laughs> and, the, and the collapse of the uh, economy after that. So, you know, suddenly. So I think that I think I'm very happy that they did that and that they were reachable. Yeah, a couple of things. That I, don't, I don't know who they sourced this material from. I could guess, but I'm, I'm not sure. Um, but, but a couple of these are probably um, amusing because a lot of folks aren't aware of them. So one of them is that organic livestock farmers do not use antibiotics you think about that that's kind of weird because that's a very common medicine animals get infections all the time bacterial infections uh and they'll get really sick and they'll infect their their friends you know whatever they will infect the animals that they live with uh, and then they can die so you have you have to treat them so the idea that they're not treated with antibiotics is kind of silly you know it's a weird marketing thing you know like like yeah and it's also when you think about animal welfare Right. You really want to, you want to, the claim is that, you know, animal ag is so, you know, destructive and it's not, it, it, people are, who are involved in animal ag uh, don't care for the well health and well-being of their animals. Well, of course they do. And so that's why they use antibiotics. And they often use, most of the antibiotics they use actually don't have human uses either. Mm-hmm. So they, they are not... That's a false claim, anyway, long and short. And it's important to be using the most advanced advanced techniques for and technology for taking care of your animals from an animal welfare perspective. Yeah, it's it's so funny to me. It's it's almost like the organic lobby thinks they're the only people that have thought of antibiotic resistance. <laughs> right. in, in reality, um, the FDA. I think this was in 2018. They they banned, and it was already being uh, cut in the industry anyway, but they banned the use of medically important human antibiotics. So the ones that we use the most for, for ourselves, you can't use those animal agriculture. You can't use antibiotics um, to boost animal growth or nope. just as, you know, you can't like as a prophylactic or whatever, like you can't use it unless they're sick and they have to be yep. prescribed by a veterinarian. And um, before the animal goes to slaughter, it has to be completely out of their system. So there's lots of regulatory, uh, you know, restrictions in place. This doesn't just happen willy nilly. Uh, That's exactly right. Know that. Okay, uh, a couple other that we can we can dive into here. I, we've talked about the pesticide thing and nauseum. Uh, organic farmers use pesticides. 
Um, they're typically older. Uh, sometimes they're much more toxic. Sometimes you have to use them in greater quantities than the than the synthetic scary chemicals, um, which is a dumb word, by the way. Synthetic versus natural. It's it, it, it the distinction means nothing in this context. It's it's a chemical. Right. It's a chemical. It, it's just like the toxicity is not impacted by whether it's natural and or not. Technically speaking, these chemicals tend to be organic. They have <laughs> carbons and hydrogens and things <laughs> like that. So if you know about organic chemistry, you know that you know technically speaking, many of these are organic products. <laughs> right. But not in the marketing sense, in right. the actual scientific sense. Right. In the mythological sense, they are not organic. <laughs> right. In the in the in the real sense, they are indeed organic, as are uh, all living things. <laughs> in all yeah. like most things. <laughs> Um, no, but in all seriousness, you have chemicals, and they're not terrible. I mean, sometimes our uses, but you have copper, which is used as a fungicide, mm -hmm. um, which, which you know, it has a purpose. I, I think the problem, we discovered it was a problem because it was being used extensively and intensively, and I, I want to say in France, in the, particularly in, like, in the wine industry. And there are, like, there are uh, occupational health hazards if you use it the wrong way. So if you aren't pro properly, you know, got, don't have proper PP and things like that, and you spray it all the time, you can get, um, uh, 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 it, what's it called? It, it, it's a, a fibrosis of the lungs, and you get copper deposits in the lungs, and it actually winds up causing um, a vineyard sprayer's lung is what it's called. And wow. um, you get, yeah, scarring, and, um, and that, that can lead to cancer. And then you, there's also, you know, you can get angiosarcoma, of the liver um, with that too. But it, it, once again, if you're using it properly, not a problem. If you're not using it properly, you can have environmental impacts and you can have health, health impacts. So you have to, these are all regulated, even if even if they are uh, uh, organic or, or not organic, they're, they're all regulated. Sure. And by the way, I should, I should say, I'm sure the formulation is different, but if you go to like a home and gardening store, <clears throat> you can buy copper to treat um, fruit trees and stuff uh, that yeah. like we have every year because we have a mandarin tree and there's these weird little critters that climb on it every year <clears throat> and they I don't know what what disease it is but they inject some kind of nasty fungus or something into yeah. my mandarin tree and the only way to to mitigate it is to spray it with copper um, and then use like a power hose and blast the bugs off the tree which is kind of fun to do but all that to say it's 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 not that the chemical itself is scary it's just that don't lie about it <laughs> yes exactly right Okay. Uh, well, I guess good ending on that one. Uh, BBC for all of the silliness they do publish. So like, whoops, we got that one wrong. So, you know, even a yeah. broken clock is right. You know, all that. So um, next, next story, this is super cool. This is one of the stories that I first read years ago and I went, this is such an awesome technology. I want to learn more about this. Um, and it's sort of, it sort of undermines the uh, <clears throat> GMOs are unnatural. Biotechnology is unnatural and you should be scared of it thing. And this is, of course, the approval of uh, insulin, human insulin. The, the brand name is Humulin. It was approved in 1982 by the FDA. Um, and uh, our, our friend, our mutual acquaintance, I guess you could say, Dr. Henry Miller with the American Council on Science and Health was the medical reviewer at the FDA at the time. So his team of scientists and regulators, they looked this over and approved it in record time in five months. And so that's the, the premise of the article here. So I'll just give a couple quick basics and then you can explain all the details. But... Um, Insulin was first discovered, I want to say, in the early 1920s, 1922. Yes. But it came from pigs and cows. 
from mm-hmm. right these animals will go to slaughter and then you would take their pancreases and you could extract insulin but you had to do it's like tons and tons of pig and cow parts like, and like two tons to get eight ounces like right. can of right. coke right yeah or less than a can of coke it's it's absurd right so so you can see why that's probably not sustainable and i think it was in the 1960s or so there that people were worried about a real shortage of insulin because you have to get so many animal parts to produce the amount that that diabetics actually need and i think because we have so much of it today even if it is really expensive for other reasons it's available you know so you know and and uh dr miller includes a picture in this of a boy he's like five or six years old and it was before he had access to insulin and he's just shriveled away to nothing and then yes. after getting a steady supply of insulin he he bulked up to a normal weight and he looks very healthy you know so i think we forget that this in many ways could be a death sentence for people not having access to this drug. Well, diabetes, type 1 diabetes had a 100% mortality rate within weeks of diagnosis prior to the discovery of insulin um, and, and its mass production. It was uniformly fatal. Um, it's starvation in the face of plenty because even though you eat sugar, right, you wind up not being able to get it into your cells. And because you can't get it into your cells, your cells starve. And so you wind up breaking down muscle and fat and things like that and, and uh, getting completely dehydrated because the excess sugar goes out in the urine and takes uh, a lot of water with it so you get dehydrated. So the symptoms of type 1 diabetes are excessive thirst, lots and lots of urine, rapid weight loss, and lots of times kids come in with something called the diabetic ketoacidosis, and you can smell on their breath ketones, and that's because the body is breaking down fats and proteins as an alternate source of energy. So um, they look, when they're very, very thin like that and wasted like that little boy in that picture, they look like they're starving, and that's because they literally are starving. Um, Yeah, so it was uniformly fatal diagnosis within weeks of diagnosis at, uh, prior to the discovery of insulin. Yeah, Henry calls it uh, quite literally a miracle drug. Because, it is. Because of, it's, it's incredible. So now here's the cool part of the story. This is in the early 1970s. We're, we're just starting to get a grasp of recombinant DNA technology or genetic engineering as it's popularly, popularly called today. And again, Liza can explain this in more detail. But in essence, you had a lot of smart people figure out that you could use certain enzymes to cut out a segment of DNA, add it to bacterial DNA, and then add that to um, another another species of bacteria. And then the bacteria reproduces, and then it mass produces whatever hormone or enzyme or protein, whatever uh, gene that you originally moved. And so that's what happened with insulin, is they figured out how to do this recombination stuff. And then they they fermented these bacteria, these GE bacteria, and then they produced as much insulin uh, as they wanted. So it's I mean it's it's just incredible. And this is kind of like with the spark that went on in my mind. I'm like, wait a minute, they just move DNA around. They move it DNA. Works. Around. It's incredible. So, so take a second and ex- explain what's going on there. If there's anything. You yeah. Like. So for a couple a couple of things. So let's just start real quick with the animals and what what went on with the animals, and then we can get over to the how how that changed that revolutionized things. So first of all. You used to get insulin from pork or pigs and, and cattle, and you needed, as, as diabetics survived, you needed more and more cattle and pork and, and, and pigs 
pancreases to keep up with the production. And so it went from being an absolutely 100% fatal disease to a manageable disease that people could live with. Now, there are a couple of things that went with that. You had to deal with animal welfare. You had to deal with a whole bunch of purifying processes when you're getting the uh, islet cells out of the tissue. Um, it, it, it was a big, huge manufacturing deal to be able to get this insulin in high quantities out of these pancre pancreases. And so when they figured out, so they figured out, if you go back to the way DNA works, the recipe for insulin comes from, which is a protein, comes from your DNA. So a gene in your DNA is, is transcribed and made into insulin, right? And it comes out of the cell and does its thing. So they discovered the genes that would do that. Now, the genes from pigs and, and cattle are slightly different than the genes from people, right? And so sometimes you would have a little bit of a mismatch because it's not quite the same protein. So you could, theoretically, some diabetics would have make antibodies to that protein, right? Mm -hmm. so, so they wouldn't because of the, it came from a different species. And so they would start to, you know, have refractory hyperglycemia, too much sugar. So they were, they were having a harder time treating with that. So that could happen. Allergic things could happen um, because, it, once again, a different species. So th those were very rare side effects, but they did happen. Um, and, and it required a huge manufacturing process. So if you could go from having needing big livestock to make your insulin to have bacteria become insulin-making factories, insulin-producing factories, that was just incredible. So when they, when they figured out which genes had the recipe for making insulin, they were able to take that DNA and put it into the bacterium, right? And then the bacterium started being able to use its own machinery to make insulin. And it made it much more easy to purify and you could make it in much greater quantities. Um, and it was human insulin, right? So it was because it was human insulin, you had less risk of any of these, these refractory um, uh, uh, like immune responses to, to the actual insulin itself, the actual protein itself. Yeah, that's pretty incredible. The, the yeah. other aspect of it that is um, instructive, I think, is the fact that um, Henry was at the FDA at the time. And so he, it's for one reason or right? another, he just, just he's, if you, if you never talk to him, you do it before, just send him an email or something. He's a really, really sharp guy. He's very nice. But he doesn't yeah. beat around the bush, you know. So I could imagine him and the FDA going, "We've got." And by the way, he says that the paperwork, because because there was no internet at the time, right? So there was no electronic submission form, right? So there's like a giant stack of medical review information and science and clinical research, like just a just an absurd roomful of of stuff that they've got to get through. It was him and a handful of other uh, FDA scientists. And they got through it in five months. And I think he says at the time, this is in the early 1980s, the average approval time for a new drug was 30 and a half months or, or the medical review, right. 30 and a half months, which is ridiculous. So they got through it and he, yeah. And so, so he's, he's like, okay, we got this. We're good. So he goes to his boss and his boss says, it's only been five months. We can't approve this yet. If something goes wrong, they'll blame us. And Henry's like, what are you talking about, dude? It's this is miraculous you know, stuff. Right, right, but and and there's something interesting there about the mindset of a bureaucrat and um, uh, public choice economics and 
we can get into that in a second. But Henry's boss goes on vacation. I just love this kind of rebel attitude. He goes to his boss and he's like, hey, we're all set. And the guy goes, yeah. okay, let's do it. <laughs> you know? And of course it's been on the market now for however many, 40 years or whatever. Years, yeah. Yeah. Right. And, and I mean, it, it was thoroughly reviewed. They did all the proper research and we have all this ex real life experience now. It works great. And everyone, every diabetic uses it, I think. Yes, yeah, yeah. And yes, and they've been able to tweak it so you have short acting, shorter acting insulins that you can use to like right after you eat. They've got longer acting insulins, so you have a baseline level and stuff like that. So they, yeah, they've, it's really a, a miraculous, miraculous drug. But now it takes right. anywhere from ten to fifteen years to get a drug on the market, and it's possibly a life-saving drug. And the reason why they push this is this is a life-saving drug, and this is an incredible technology, right? But there are so many similar drugs that are in, you know, the pipeline going, being worked through, and it takes $2.5 billion to get a drug on the market, right? And 10, 15 years of intensive study. Um, and lots of testing and things like that. So getting through those regulatory hoops are, are pretty incredible. Now, I think that, you know, with the mRNA vaccines, that was unbelievable technology that we were able to show that you can definitely streamline that process if you've got, you know, if you've got the right forces in play. Uh, the problem is that people uh, now do not trust because of this kind of anti-science um, thinking uh, and because of you know some of the mistakes made during COVID, which were not mistakes made by the vaccine, um, and, right. but some of the some of the policies that were created during COVID, I think um, in retrospect made people really to suspect and you know not trust the regulatory system, and that's really unfortunate. Yeah, yeah, the vaccine didn't shut down your kid's school or uh, pick and choose who could go to. Uh... Yeah, and the scientists who were making the vaccine all wanted their kids to go to school. They wanted, to, they didn't want to get COVID. They didn't want to get sick, and so, yeah, that's that's the that's the frustrating part about that. Yeah, the the fascinating thing for me is is what Henry he calls it the bureaucratic mindset. You know, the, this idea because a lot of people have this mythology, and I think the FDA itself kind of perpetuates this. If you read their their marketing material about how awesome they are and why you should give them more money each year. Um, you know, the idea is, right, you have these objective scientists and they're up here and they're going to look at the data and they're not affected by politics because they have tenure or whatever the bureaucratic equivalent of tenure is. So they can't be fired and they're supposed to be objective and they're just going to follow the science and you can't trust those greedy pharma companies because those bastards are up to no good. That's why we got the FDA. And then when you get an inside look, you go, oh, wait a minute. Actually, there's a lot of political pressure and they often do things. Sometimes it's good, like in the case of COVID, like the the, the government was not going to be like, oh, yeah, take 10 years. We'll just hang out here with our masks and we'll hang out in our house. Right. That's not yeah, yeah, exactly right. Right. So, the, so anyways, federal agencies, very subject to political pressure. And of course, the people there have reputations and they want to succeed in their careers. And so if they can see that there's a risk in a decision and they can avoid it, even if it potentially puts someone's life on the line, they're so far removed up from it that they don't care. And that's what Henry's describing. And that's what um, in economics, it's called public choice theory. And all it says in essence is people in the public sector, <clears throat> excuse me, politicians, uh, regulators, they respond to the same incentives, right? They like, they like success and they like money and they like being fake. It's, it's, they're, just, they're humans, right? So even if they yeah. work in the government, that those incentives don't just disappear for them. And this right. is exactly what you're seeing. 
So I think this is also, it's a secondary aspect of the story, but it's good for people to see that this is what happens. That's right. Okay. Um, yeah, just really great stuff. So we can stop there and go on to uh, what's good. It's going to be a tough story. Everyone. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Yeah. I'm just assuming that it's not a tough story. I think it's funny um, and entertaining and, and, and informative, but we're talking here. This is a story yes. by uh, Jerry Coynes, an evolutionary biologist at the university of Chicago. I just, I've never met him and I don't know him, but I just imagine him as like this old crusty scientist who like is looking at ant colonies and then someone's like, Sex is a spectrum. He's like, what? What are you talking about? <laughs> uh, that, that's my impression. I'm sure he's awesome. I'd, I'd love to have him on the show. We can arrange that. But in any case, he has this blog that he's written for years. It's called Why Evolution is True. Um, and you can tell what it's about from that. But in recent years, he's kind of turned his attention to this, I don't know, whatever you want to call it, this whatever ideology is pushing certain, certain you know, sex is a spectrum, gender is a social construct, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and people can believe that, but his opposition to it is that it's encroaching into biology and people are just being expected to say, oh yeah, we've always known this. I mean, we haven't talked about it until four years ago, but it's, yeah, we've, you know. <laughs> so he's one of the few biologists that's really taken exception to some of these claims. And here he's talking about an article. This was the lead or the cover story for uh, a recent uh, edition of Scientific American, and it was called... Uh, Women hunters, women hunters, I think. Yeah. And they're trying to undo or challenge this idea that in our evolutionary past, men were hunters and women were um, homemakers. Uh, homemakers and mothers. And they, right, they stayed back while the men did the, man, the manly man stuff, right? So they are the authors and they, they are scientists as well, but they, they're kind of pushing back on this idea that women evolved to be second class citizens. And I think this is important is, is, uh, what Dr. Coyne's saying, he's like, that's not what's at issue here, right? Right. The, the the issue of equality or women's equality or anyone's equality, right? That's a moral issue, and that's, that's not right. contingent. That's not contingent upon anthropological data about hunting, <laughs> right? That's right. It doesn't come down to that. So, like, and, and I, it's really important that people stress that because sometimes when you get into these discussions, people say, "Well, you're uh, right. You're anti-woman." It's like, no, no one's anti. Just shut up. No right? So, that's right. Right. So his his point is like, look, you, there's no amount of data on who hunted back in the day that's going to say okay well now women have no rights because they didn't hunt, right like no 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 one's making that argument so that's the point that he's making from the outset but but basically the the uh siam article is saying look we have this new data that shows that there were uh women that hunted right they would go out in the hunting parties and therefore you know there's no difference in strength between men and women and everyone believes this myth because of sexism and because of patriarchy or whatever right so I'll, I'll let you dive in and talk about the, the science, but the, the alternative hypothesis that um, Dr. Coyne puts forward is that, well, there are actual differences, biological, physiological differences between men and women, and it comes down to sex selection uh, for mating preferences, right? So women find certain traits in men attractive for whatever reason, I don't care, whatever theory you push is fine. You know, there's lots of competing ideas. But women effectively select for men that are bigger and stronger and faster. And from an evolutionary perspective, you can say, oh, well, that makes sense, right? You want someone who's big and strong who's going to, right, kill the saber tooth when it comes for your ba baby or whatever, right? right. Um, and, so, and so over time, this leads to, <clears throat> and of course, this is no, like, secret, you know, sexist conspiracy. It's just biology, right? Biology. So people... People are sort of, it's a sort of a natural division of labor where it's like, well, I'm bigger and faster, so I'll go do this. Uh, and you birth babies... So you do that, right? It's it's like it's it's not even a choice almost. So that's 
the alternative he points out. And he comes down to the conclusion and says, you know, let's just follow the science to use a cliche at this point. And, and we don't like, it doesn't have to influence our politics in any way. Yeah. I think actually, I think that this discussion is one of the things that is, has uh, actually undermined um, the public's acceptance of scientific principles more than anything is this exact discussion. Um, they, 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 they look at, non-scientists look at sex as binary, right? There are men and there are women. If every once in a while there's a little intersex question, um, and that's extraordinarily rare. I think it's 0.018%, right? And so discussions can go around that, but, but long and short is that that is it, one. And so when they hear, when they hear people when they hear scientists say that, you know, sex is not binary and the idea that it is binary is discriminating against women, they, they go, well, what, you know, you, you, you're telling me the earth's not flat either. <laughs> so, so, you know, or, or you know, I, I'm supposed to believe in evolution. I'm supposed to believe the earth is a sphere. I'm supposed to believe in all these scientific principles, except for this one, like this one thing that is absolutely true. And I know this from my whole existence, except for the past four years. And now all of a sudden it's not supposed to be true. And um, it's discriminating against some group. If you, if it's all of a sudden, if, if you point to it as true. Now, that, the other thing that I don't understand is the marginalization of having babies and raising babies. And because you know what? That's a superpower. Men donate one dinky little cell, that one dinky little cell, and one then. That's exactly right. And then women grow this, take it their cell, but then it, everything else comes from mom, right? And it, that is a superpower. And, it, and that is why human beings exist, because of motherhood. And I, I think that people, if people gave motherhood its due respect, um, I think that we would, we would hold mothers in much higher esteem. If you, I think I saw some years, several years ago, I saw a, a what it would cost to, to be a mom. And say, it, was, it, was, it was a video where there was, it was a job interview and people were applying for this management position. And the management position meant that you had to be on call 24 7 365 you had to do the bosses being the child's um the laundry you had to you know feed they have three three meals a day you had to drive them everywhere and and with the job description you'd see these people that looking at this job description going oh my god i don't how do i tell this person i don't want this job that sounds like a really hard job and then the interviewer was like well that's that's the best motherhood and they were like, oh, my gosh, and have a newfound respect for their mothers. So I think that I think that people really need to understand how critical it is for civilization that there is good child rearing. And it is just as important as any male job. And they, they people underestimate how important it is. And, and, and they think it's a negative when 
people say it's an important job. And I, I, I think that that's where this whole anthropologic discussion has gone. And I think it's really, really in, unfortunate because uh, that's how you keep society stable. Um, so uh, scientifically, really important, scientifically two sexes. Yes, I understand that there's gender dysphoria. Yes, I understand that, you know, some people uh, have these ideas. Uh, and, but that's, that's separate than the reality of males and females and um you know males the hormones and 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 hormone receptors are very different than women's hormones and hormone receptors they've got unique features that balance each other right and that's that's the way that's that's what reality is this is another quote from Coyne. He's actually, um, he's blogged about this a lot, but he's also published some peer review papers because he's just so infuriated with this whole whole movement that he's just, you know, he's like, I'm trying to safeguard my profession. It's, it's him and a handful of other people in that field. Like Colin Wright is another evolutionary biologist who's well known for this. But Coyne writes, uh, sex is binary in all animals. In humans, for example, the frequent frequency of exceptions, as you alluded to, to the binary is only uh, 0.018% or one person in 5,600. This is about the same probability of flipping a nickel uh, and having it land on its edge. But we don't say heads, tails, or edge when calling a coin toss. For all practical purposes, sex is binary. Uh, I, I don't understand what the controversy is. You know, I think I think the problem is, is that we've allowed ourselves to start defining truth by what people want to believe or what people feel instead of what we know. Yes. And um, it, we don't do that universally, right? Well, for example, and we saw this all during COVID, right? When it came to debunking, you know, anti-vaccine uh, misinformation. I hate that word. I just, can we just stop yeah. with the mis... I hate that word. Anyways, when it came to that, right, all of a sudden, objective truth was a thing again. It's like, no, the vaccine was studied for this long. It has this sp uh, specific effect. It does not have these side effects. Science, 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 bio, blah, 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 right, right? We know all these things objectively, and then it comes to like... Okay, so there's only men and women, right? Well, I mean, that's a complex uh, sociological question, and I'm a biologist, and I can't really tell you, but, you know, it's like, just, why, why do we have to do this? Right? Why, why do we have to tie ourselves in knots? You know, you, like, if you want to be trans, then carpe diem, right? Do whatever you, do whatever you want. It's not, it's not that big of a deal, I don't think, at least on that specific question, but... Yeah. Right, we have to pretend that everyone's always known that this is true. It's like, no one knows this is true, because it's... That's exactly right. And once again, I think it's, it is at, at the foundation of undermining people's trust in science because they, the same people who scold people for saying that, they, you know, for having a faith, for example, will go completely, this, this is on faith. This is an anthropology claim. This is not a scientific claim. So, I, I, you know, and and, and people lose their jobs, and people are scared to stand up. I, I think doctors have been scared to stand up and, and talk about that things like this because they're afraid of they're afraid of the um, ramifications. There are real ramifications if you do go against the grain with this. Yeah, it's pretty wild. Uh, a couple of just some some odds and ends from the story that are really important. I think um, the first is that kind of to the point you were just making is that within anthropology or within evolutionary biology, this is an ongoing discussion. And it seems that there are a lot of people with the appropriate expertise uh, critiquing this, this female hunter idea. And they're just saying, well, look, we have this data. Um, it looks like there's some evidence that in some tribes or some communities, women hunted 
smaller animals or they trap smaller animals. But that's not the same thing as, you know, chasing down a, a buffalo or whatever, right? Like, right. like throwing a giant spear at an animal that could trample of you. It's not the same thing. And it's not a bad thing to point that out. It's just, it's just it's different. different. It's okay, right? Has nothing yeah. to do with equality. Um, and then sort of sort of building on what coin says is that um you know you do have these intersex conditions as they're called but those don't correlate to people's gender identities so like if you ask someone what their gender is and they go well i'm a zur or whatever they're not intersex yeah. almost certainly not right yeah and if you and if right. you ask the, if you ask the advocates of this this ideology if they want science to bolster their ideas they most of them will say no because it's my lived right. experience and it's my truth and I don't need your bioessentialism, as they call it, right? So all of it's the, 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 that's what amuses me the most is all of these academics are like we're gonna like Neil deGrasse Tyson, you know, we're gonna give a scientific case for for trans identity, and they're like we don't we don't want it, right? We don't want your your science, you know, polluting our our stuff. So that's exactly, anyways, yeah, anyway, yep, yep, yep. No, they're all on the uh, you know social cultural kind of thing, right? So. Yeah, and I, I just once again, I think it's I think it's it undermines uh, undermines our credibility, and I think it's unfortunate. I think it's unfortunate. Okay, we'll send all your angry letters to Liza, and uh, <laughs> 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 I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I will happily take uh, if people have questions or thoughts about about what we've just talked about. Happy to discuss those. Um, yeah, we'll I think talk about is... them. Go ahead. Go ahead. Okay, we'll talk about them anytime. Yes, any yes. you know. I, we're happy to answer questions. Yeah, and I, and I think it's it's getting better over time. It seems slowly but surely there are people willing to have these kind of conversations. But this is how we kind of turn the turn away the, the silliness, right? Like like evolution's a fact, and also there's uh, unlimited sex. It's like how's that work exactly? <laughs> like you know what I mean? Like let's just let's just shine some light and pour some salt on this, and we're we're gonna get over this, anyways. That'll do it for us. All Thank right. you for joining us. As always, we'll be back next week for 243. Follow us on social media. It's at Dr. Liza Dunn on Twitter, X, whatever, at CamJ English, and at Genetic Literacy for the Genetic Literacy Project. Go to their website, read their content, because they put this on for us, and they're awesome, and we really appreciate it. So thank you, GLP. Everyone have a great week. See you next time.